Very good. Well, ladies and gentlemen, our subject this evening, philosophy and truth, goes right to the core of the matter. It is the very business of practical philosophy. It is a journey which leads all the way. It's not always a smooth journey and sometimes can upset when almost inevitably some of our dearest beliefs and certainties are challenged along the way. It is a journey which can take a lifetime of study or a moment of graceful insight and more often it's a combination of both. It's a journey where there are many rest stops along the way, all offering degrees of comfort, sometimes even to the extent of not feeling the need to proceed any further. However, we should take heart that whether we stop or proceed, there is no more useful business, no more worthwhile endeavor for a human being than this pursuit of truth. If we are to pursue the quest all the way, we should be prepared to go beyond true things, true beliefs, and true speech to the very nature of truth itself. As Plato put it, two and a half thousand years ago. What is at issue is the conversion of the mind from the twilight of error to the truth. That climb up into the real world which we should call true philosophy. More recently, Einstein offered the scientific point of view, another pointer that while he had not been able to prove it, he was convinced of its existence and even attempted a description. That ultimate truth, the unified field which we seek, must be simple, beautiful, and light. While in general, people lose interest when something is shown not to be true. Conversely, everyone is interested in the truth. And so the inquiry concerning truth can come up anywhere, even in the most unusual and unexpected circumstances. For example, at a dinner party recently with some neighbors, knowing of my long-standing interest in philosophy, one of the guests asked, what is all this philosophy about? Now, having met many such polite inquiries over the years, the stock reply was given. Philosophy means the love of wisdom. And expecting that that would be the end of the matter, and the conversation would take its usual turn discussing local matters, business, the state of the world, and in particular, those neighbors who had not been invited to the dinner party. <laughs> but curiously, on this occasion, not so. 
Instead, a further question. What does that mean? What does love of wisdom mean? Now, still expecting this to be of superficial and polite interest only, the answer given was that for a human being, this involved seeking the truth about the nature of man, the purpose of a human life, and his relationship with the creation. Now this is usually enough to confirm the view that philosophy is for odd balls, and so the conversation could return to the weather and the neighbors. But to my surprise, on this occasion, it was not the end of the matter. And perhaps because it was early in the evening and the wine had not taken hold, the Inquisition continued in a persistent and coherent way, although now it was just one-on-one, -on -one, the rest of the company having lost interest in the matter. And then looking directly at me, the further question was asked, have you discovered the truth about the purpose of a human life, the nature of man and his relationship with the creation? this time with the first real touch of skepticism. Well, just as any well-informed first-year philosophy student would reply, the answer given was that the purpose of a human life is to realize the truth. Uniquely, the nature of a human being makes that possible. And in realizing the truth about himself, the truth about the creation is also known. There was a slight pause, and as again, and so often in the past, that looked like the end of the conversation. But curiously, this time, instead, prompting a further thoughtful observation. If the object of the exercise is that we are to discover the truth, then surely we're all chasing something different, because there are as many truths as there are people. Well, now, this was getting serious. But unable to let the statement go unchallenged, the response was that, no, you could not have two truths. Clearly, two or more truths was a contradiction in terms. Given that truth exists, it must be one, single, and the same everywhere. And that is what makes truth truth. Nonsense was the reply to that piece of wisdom, followed by a further question. What time is it now? Well, it was nine o'clock. And what time is it in New York? Five o'clock? And in Dubai? Don't know, but probably different again. And in each case, these are true statements. But the times are different. So there are different truths. Well, we need to be clear about this, was the reply. The times are different, but the statements are true. So in each statement, you have that which is different, i.e. the times, and that which is the same, i.e. true. And when we use the term true, we mean the same, whether in Dublin, New York, or Dubai.
So clearly, we have to make a distinction between facts which can be different and true which means the same. So different times, but one truth. Just as you can have a beautiful picture, a beautiful person, a beautiful book, three very different things, but all manifesting beauty, which is the same beauty. Now, the company was not satisfied with this at all. And my friend said, look, I will prove to you that you can have different truths about the same fact. And with that, he stood up and held out his hand to shake mine, which for a moment I thought was just a reassurance that we were still on friendly terms. But in fact, it was part of the proof of his argument. So the sudden movement attracted the attention of the whole room again, and standing over me, he asked, am I reaching up or down? Down was the reply. And what way are you reaching? <laughs> up was the reply. And the point where our hands meet is the same point? Yes. So this same point is down for me and up for you. And then like the cat who got the cream, he said, is that true in each case? Yes, was the reply. So both statements are true. So there are two truths. Forget about Dubai and all that nonsense. And he sat down, and you could hear around the table a chorus of approval, just audible, unmistakable mutterings, he's right, you know, and so on, from the other guests who are now re-involved in the great debate. Well, now, there was no turning back. Both statements are true, but only relative to the different positions of our bodies. So what we have here is relative truth, which is not really truth at all. Take away our bodies, and you have a location which is neither up or down. You're then left with the question, what is the true location of this point, which is no longer subject to where I happen to be sitting or standing? Will it disappear when we leave the room? Or have we to face the prospect that the truth about this and other matters lies elsewhere? Now, by this, this point, you would not win any prizes for guessing that my inquisitor was an engineer. Now, with apologies to any engineers who may be here this evening. Anyway, he quickly withdrew his hand and resumed his seat. But the damage was done now, and everyone wanted in on the argument. The alternative is that the truth is what I can see, what I can touch, what I can hear. Another guest piped up. That's all you can trust. So can we trust the senses? What's the truth about this table, for example? Is it moving or steady, was the question. What does sight tell us? That it is unmoving. And touch, that it is solid. Now here my engineer friend became a surprising ally, jumped in with, in truth, every part of this table is in motion and in continuous motion. And in fact, there's more space than substance in it. And then really warming to his subject, he continued, because of this continuous motion, nothing in this table or this room 
or even our bodies would be the same when we leave here tonight as when we arrived. And that's got nothing to do with the lovely meal served by our host and hostess. However, none of these changes will be obvious to the senses, which simply means that you cannot trust the senses to show you the whole picture. But perhaps what it does mean is that the truth about everything is that it is changing from moment to moment. Okay, while it is true that things are changing from moment to moment, in the search for truth itself, the key thing you're looking for is something which does not change. Surely a fundamental element of truth must be that which does not change. If something is changing all the time, how can it be true? So, in the search, we need to look beyond the ever-changing. Funnily enough, and perhaps because it was so self-evident, that observation went uncontested, but the conversation had now taken hold. And another guest, with the kind of heat that such conversations often generate, spoke up and said, look, let's face it, there is no such thing as absolute truth. Dubai and all this nonsense about moving tables or otherwise. There's no such thing as absolute truth. Now his wife, who was watching him, and who sounded like she may have been waiting for years for the chance, <laughs> simply asked him if he thought what he had just said was true. <laughs> now clearly sensing a trap, if he said it was true, he was contradicting himself, he cannily replied that he didn't know whether it was true or not. To which his wife, with undisguised delight, asked if he thought that that statement was true. Because if it was not true, surely it had no worth. So why bother the company with it? And realizing that no matter what he said, he would be faced with the same question he had to settle for a dismissive wave of his hand, and although he fell silent, it was clear to everyone at the table that while it was probably no threat to their relationship, it was a long way from the end of the matter for that couple. You could imagine the ensuing row when they got home. He would say, well, you made a right show of me tonight there in front of our neighbors. And his wife lovingly would look at him and say, is that true? <laughs> Dear. <laughs> However, in the conversation that followed around the table, it was now clear that unless you could say something was true, even if it was wrong, it had no substance, it carried no weight, and meant nothing. So the truth was the real substantive element in speech, and if in speech, then in everything. So are we saying then that without truth, nothing exists, was the next challenging question. That truth is ultimate. Well, our now engaged and thinking group could not go along with that and ventured that truth could not be ultimate because there was an equal, 
opposite an alternative. Something that had nothing to do with truth, lies, for example. And so we had to face the question, whether this was so, where lies a real opposite alternative. In other words, was it possible to have a lie without the truth? Now try as we might, no one could conceive of a lie without the truth. Lies, it was clear, were not an alternative to truth but rather totally dependent on the truth for their very existence. Without the truth, no lie was possible. By contrast, truth did not need a lie to exist. Truth clearly was self-existent, independent and ultimate. Well, this brought a, a pause to the proceedings, as everyone seemed to be reflecting on the conversation so far, which in summary had concluded that a distinction was needed between truthful things and truth itself. Truthful things were all different, but that which allowed them to be called true was the same. So there were not many truths, but one truth. An important distinction had been drawn between relative truths governed by time and space or body positions and the truth which existed absolutely. Whatever truth is, it is not subject to change. The limitations of the senses which saw moving tables as unmoving prevented the senses from revealing the truth. Truth was ultimate. Without truth, nothing real could exist. And even the apparent opposite of truth, a lie, had no independent existence and could only exist as an aspect of truth. Well then, there were some thoughtful rhetorical questions were posed from one of the ladies present who had not been involved so far, but who had been following the matter closely. And she asked, so are we now saying that there's only one truth, that truth does not change, and if it does not change, that is not subject to decay, and if it is not subject to decay, then it must be eternal, and if it is eternal, it must be ever-present, and if it is ever-present, it must be present here now. This was too much for my engineer friend, who protested loudly. Hold it, hold it, hold it. If all this is true, and if it is here now, could somebody please tell me or show me where exactly it is? And without waiting for an answer, if it is the same truth, how come no matter where I look, all I can see is different? And give me a break. If it is eternal, how come we've just agreed that everything here, seen and unseen, is getting old and changing all the time from moment to moment? Instead of one harmonious truth, as far as I can see, all we have is disagreement and dissension. It's even caused a row between Mary and her husband. And so this ultimate one truth business is all so much baloney. 
why don't we ask Mr. Philosophy here, who started all this, and who has suddenly gone very quiet for his answer. Well, happily quoting the wise, the answer offered was that the problem for engineers, and indeed for all who rely on the world of science for proofs, is that they only look to the physical world, or the world of measurement, for answers. What the wise remind us of over and over again is that the physical world is not the only world. There are, in fact, three worlds. The causal world, where the causes are held. The physical world, the world where everything appears. And the mental or subtle world, which connects them. A bit like an architect's drawing of a house, which is causal the actual physical house when it appears, and all the activity between connecting. Of these, clearly the physical world is not the ultimate world, but rather the end of a process or the end of a line. It's an ever-changing world, this physical world, of effects reflecting the unchanging higher causes. The effects are simply appearances that we can see and touch reflecting the unchanging higher worlds. A bit like electricity, which always remains the same while its effects are diverse. While it remains the same, it can freeze or it can boil depending on the substance it's working through. The difficulty is that you cannot explain the effect in terms of the effect. It would be like trying to explain honey in terms of honey. In the case of honey, clearly the cause lies somewhere completely different. So in order to find the truth then, and remember what we're looking for is that which does not change, you would have to go beyond the world of ever-changing effects to the unchanging world of causes. Working only in one plane is a bit like pulling a radio set apart, trying to find the person who is speaking. Clearly, the answer simply does not lie in analyzing the effect. The cause lies further back, and maybe even in a different country. And again, as we discussed earlier, while radio broadcasts many different stories on different networks, producing all these different effects, the cause remains the same. Radio remains radio. You would never say that the radio has changed, that radio has changed because the programs have changed. So in the physical world, we have to remember that what takes our attention is the effect, because it is in our face and it is accessible to the senses. And so it is easy to understand how we can take the effect to be ultimate and try to explain everything at that level. This means we end up trying to fix one effect with another. And this inevitably leads to greater and greater complexity and gives rise to the great intractable moral dilemmas where we try to balance one unacceptable fact against another equally unacceptable one. You only have to look at the arguments which rage around euthanasia, abortion, divorce, stem cell research, human cloning, just to mention a few. Instead of seeing 
the body, senses, mind and intellect within truth. People look for senses in the body, mind in the senses, intellect in the mind and truth in the intellect. The consequence of this is that the most important becomes the least important and the least important becomes the most important. Of course, it is the other way around. Truth is the most important, and everything truthful flows from that. Okay, 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 my engineer friend, with some frustration, spoke up again. With radio, you can get a textbook. You can go to college, you can learn about it. Where are the textbooks which show what truth is then? And again, it was possible to turn to the wise. The wise offer three proofs of truth. The textbooks are the scriptures, which are always pointing beyond the physical world and which contain the recorded experiences of knowers of the truth of the past. So the first proof that's offered is scriptural authority. However, invariably accompanied by the direction that we need the help of a competent teacher to guide us. The second proof of truth that's offered is reason. Here, in order to free reason from our own pet ideas and loyalties, rigorous discipline is needed so that we are grounded in the clarity of detachment rather than caught in endless circular rationalization. And this is where the discipline and study offered by a philosophy school serves the need, always stressing that ultimate values must be judged by the standard of eternity and not by opinion, time and circumstance. And the third proof of truth is personal experience. Finally, the conclusions of the scriptures reaffirmed by reason, must be experienced by the man himself, where ultimate truth, the basis of the universe, is self-evident, free from fear and contradiction, and is simple, beautiful, and light. For somebody who has managed to do this, is described as follows. So a seer of truth, such a one sees truth everywhere and in everything and thus becomes completely free from fear, sorrow and expectation which characterize life in the relative world. So if you're there, they're the qualities. Free from fear, sorrow and expectation. Now, <clears throat> this seemed as far as the company were prepared to take the matter. However, my engineer friend was slowly shaking his head from side to side. So perhaps a little foolishly, I asked him if he was all right. No, I'm not all right, he said. 
This is what gets philosophy a bad name. You're told what you should do, where you should look, how you should look, but no one, no one can give you a simple answer to a simple question. In fact, as usual, there are no answers. And this is most unsatisfactory. But hold on a minute. I said you could be on to something. There is one more question. Probably the most useful, most revealing of all, and a question which is rarely or never asked. No, we're at the end of the line. There are no answers. There never have been any answers. And there never will be any answers. We've asked all the questions. And as usual, we're up a completely unsatisfactory blind alley. There is one more question, I protested. The ultimate question, the one which holds the key, are you sure you cannot spot what it is? It is the question which shows us the barrier to our understanding, the very mistake that hides truth from us and leaves us dissatisfied and divided. The simple question which releases us and moves the argument to a conclusion. I'm sure you all know what that question is. Anyway, here it is. How come there are no answers? There are no answers because ultimate truth is just that, ultimate. It is subject, not object. It is what I am. It is what I am, not what I seek. It is what I am, not what I know. It is what I am, not what I think or believe. Reason, one of the three proofs, tells us you cannot be what you observe. Clearly, whatever I know is under observation and therefore object. Whatever I think is under observation and therefore object. Whatever I believe is under observation and therefore object. So none of these are ultimate. And at every turn, you are left with the unchanging, observing subject. As subject, you cannot see it, you cannot know it, you cannot describe it, you can only be it. Truth is the causal substance of everything, not the end appearance. And until that penny drops, we will continue looking, continue seeking, continue questioning, while all the time missing the point that what I am in truth is the seeker, not what I seek. It is when this dawns that we can understand Jesus when he says that the truth will set you free, or perhaps put a whole new insight on Socrates, a judge the wisest of men, when he says that he knew nothing. So in philosophy, while the question is king, even questions are only useful 
to get to the point where you're happy to simply drop thinking, fall still, and enjoy being. This is the direct experience of being home, which satisfies, which is blissful. Nowhere to go, nothing to do, no other. Simple, beautiful, and light. As long as there are questions and answers, no matter how brilliant, there's further to go. So to return to the very first question about philosophy and what it is, philosophy drives the inquiry into truth. It shows, using reason, that what we are looking for is singular, that is one truth, so it is simple, not complex that it does not change, so it is eternal and therefore ever-present, and that being ultimate, the substantive element in everything, it is subject, not object, so cannot be found in any answer. And this is the realization that ultimately the truth is not object over there, Rather, in essence, it is what I am, what we essentially are, what everything essentially is. All that we know, think or believe, no matter how brilliant, no matter how sincere, can only take us to the brink. The ultimate step in realization of truth requires surrender of knowing of thinking and believing. Surrender your brilliance. Be still, and that which exists, that which does not change, that which knows no other, is ours. For the scriptural authority proof, here are some of the last earthly words of Jesus to his immediate disciples on the subject. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. And again, Jesus, when he was asked by Thomas, how can we know the way, Lord? He replied, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Three different words, each referring to the same pure consciousness, I am, which is the inner self of all beings, the way of ways, the truth of truths, and the life of lives. In the Old Testament, we have, be still and know that I am God. Often sung with great gusto, but is its true meaning understood? Still with the scriptural authority proof, if you go to a different tradition altogether, to the Upanishads, you'll find this in the Upanishad, the divine, which is one only, is hidden in all things, and is the inner self of all beings. He presides over all actions, and all beings reside in him. He is the witness, he is pure consciousness. 
is a further scriptural authority from a different tradition again, in the words of the Buddha. These readings are only a finger pointing to the noble wisdom. They are intended for the consideration and guidance of the discriminating minds of all people. But they are not the truth itself, which can only be self-realized within one's own deepest consciousness. And finally, from yet another spiritual tradition, 500 BC in China, Lao Tzu, the very opening words of the Tao Te Ching, had this to say, the name that can be named is not the eternal name. The unnameable is the eternally real. Free from desire, you realize the mystery. Caught in desire, you see only appearances. And so, with scriptural authority pointing the way, reason revealing the means, let's see now if it's possible in our personal experience to fall still, and even for a very short time, see if we can surrender thinking. And perhaps discover a touch of being united with that in each of us, which is the same, unchanging source of all. Simple, beautiful, and light. And I'm just going to ask you, without moving too much, if you want to close your eyes, if you're comfortable with that, and let's just see if we can put to the test, in a practical way, through our personal experience, what we've been talking about. And the first step is to be fully present. And a physical body is always in the present, so if you bring the body into view and connect with the body, we will be present. Feel the weight of it on the chair and the feet on the ground and be fully here. And now with your best attention, just turn the attention out using the hearing so that we come out of our heads and put your full attention with the hearing turned out to all the sounds in the room, any sounds in the city outside, and just being careful to allow these sounds to come and to pass while staying with the hearing. Now, in this experience, it's possible to verify that there is that in us which is ever-changing, i.e. the sounds in this case as they come to pass, which are always noticed and always take our attention. But there's also that in us, the hearing, which doesn't change, which is always the same, 
which is the same in every one of us and is invariably left out of account. Our attention goes to the ever-changing and we miss the unchanging. So just for these few moments, see if it's possible to connect with the hearing and let the sounds come to pass. and refine the hearing to the furthest and gentlest sounds. And the ultimate step, and see if it's possible to do this. Refine the hearing to the silence out of which all these sounds arise and into which they return. The mind will fall quiet by itself. And if you're lucky enough to meet that, you will meet that unchanging part of us, your true self, the truth which is simple, beautiful and light. Well, very good. And thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. We'll have a cup of tea now. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, it's always encouraging when people come back after the break. Uh, <laughs> I know the big question at the break, deeply philosophical at the question, question at the break was, was that a real dinner party? <laughs> <laughs> and allied to that, is there any chance of being invited for the next one? They're the two. So that's the level of questions that we have. Anyway, if there's anything you'd like to raise that would help us to understand a little bit more about this be very good I, I didn't expect to hear what I heard tonight so I'm not exactly ready to respond directly to it because when I came I was thinking about truth as a kind of a characteristic of the various aspects of life of, they are of, true love. of life. Of life, yeah. Whether they are true statements, um, true interpretations of something, or I suppose every, all of us in our day-to-day -day lives are looking 
to find out is this right? Is, not yeah. whether it's morally right, but is, is this right? Is this correct? Mm. Is it true? And uh, the more we know about things being true, the more we kind of feel better able to manage our way through daily life. Sure. And it seems that this is some, something quite different, which is a kind of self-examination reached through meditation, I suppose, mm. to find something more about yourself and let the benefits of that emanate into your, ultimately into your daily work-a-day life. Sure. Is that sure. what it would? Sure. Maybe it's not so much a question as a comment, and you yes, might maybe sure. say something about it. Thank you, Terry. Well, th this was the issue. You can talk about truthful things, truthful ideas, truthful beliefs. The aim of philosophy is to get to the heart of the matter of truth itself. Truth itself. What is truth itself? That is the great philosophical discussion that has run right down through the ages. Just like what is justice itself, what is beauty itself. And so that's where we were this evening, to try and, and tackle truth itself, which is the substantive element in everything. It's not that easy. It's challenging. It is, uh, it is challenging. And so it is different in that we're not just talking about true statements. We're looking at truth itself. And that's why those ultimate steps of surrendering all of those other qualities that you mentioned that we use, surrendering, I know, great torment, I know, I do, I believe, and get behind those and see, is there anything left when you surrender those positions? And if there is, what's it like? And what's its nature? And what's its character? And so the journey of philosophy takes you through reason to explore that area. But it is different than our customary way of examining things rationally and explaining them and questioning them and so on. And it is very unusual for us in our Western society to value silence as being useful rather than the intellect, the busy inquiring intellect. Very unusual. But that's where we've been tonight. And, uh, if I could just make one last thing. A good question to ask, all of us ask is, that in the Western world, the idea is the real God is my intellect, my understanding. And a good question to ask is, is there anything beyond that? When the mind is quiet, is there anything or is there nothing? That is a good, a good question to ask. And if there is anything, what's it like? You know the way we, we describe things as true? In common everyday language, the adjective true, it's true. And the opposite of that is false. And so I suppose the simple person would see the pursuit of truth as leading to some kind of rational realization mm. of ultimate truth, or maybe mm. almost a belief in God or something like that. This seems to me, this truth thing seems to me to be, maybe it's a misnomer or something, because it leads you into false paths, into thinking about that, that construct of true-false facts yes. and so on. 
but to call it truth, I'm not sure why those two things have the same name. Hmm. Truth and the right or wrong thing, you know what I mean? Well, the interesting thing about the conversation about truth takes you, takes you beyond right or wrong. You're, you're gone way beyond right or wrong. You're into that which is real. Right or wrong very often is in the realm of what would be called ignorance. And the philosophical inquiry is designed to take you past that into the substantive, that which simply is, has no becoming, does not change. And that can be ultimate reality, truth, or for the religious person, God. The person who wants to, is devotional, will worship seeking God. And the person who is rational will use reason seeking truth. But in the final reality, truth and God are the one, the one thing. So some people would have great difficulty with the belief in God, but they might be able to believe that truth exists. And in that, they find their contentment, their satisfaction. So you have heart cases and head cases. <laughs> and Terry, you're a head case, is that right? <laughs> you want the facts, yes. Good. Given that nobody else is grabbing the mic or turret, singing a song or something. Oh! But, um, an excellent talk, by the way, and hopefully consistent with the usual standard that we come to expect from the school. Absolutely brilliant. I personally found it slightly disappointing. I couldn't find anything that I could pick an argument with you over. Uh, <laughs> well, this is just certainly unusual. Unusual. You know the way the marriage rate in Ireland is on the increase, and uh, the, the marriage breakdown rate, rather? Yes. I, I don't know that's that's in a party and, and discussion on philosophy. Mary and her husband, are they all right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're uh, all right, yeah. <laughs> the thing about truth, um, the school on, on uh, General One handed out a, uh, one of the handouts was a, a poem, which I'm not thinking about poets or poetry or anything related to that in, in that respect. But then with this particular poem by Robert Browning, it was, related, it was, it was about saying the truth is within. Yes. And he, he, he describes how it's hemmed in by the gross flesh and it's, sure. it's the baffling and, and uh, carnal mesh. That's right. It. And he goes on to say that to know it's about. Uh, is rather than opening out a, a way for the imprisoned splendor, as he calls it, yes. to escape, rather than, you know, fetching an entry for a, for a life that's supposed to be without. Sure. But, so we're just bringing it back to that last comment about God. Do you believe that there is a God, as it's commonly defined? You, you quote various authorities there to, to illustrate your point. I think it's perpetuating a myth to suggest that there's something or somebody called God without actually defining what you are, attempting to define what you mean. Mm. Because we automatically, I think we automatically sort of put our own construction on it instantly. And that'd be based on our sort of experience or, or, or learning or lack of it. In that sense that uh, when you say God, people instantly think of their version or what they what sure. was from into them or the indoctrination they received. Sure. Uh, and I think with respect it's sort of a, it's somewhat misleading. Okay. Well, very good. Well, one of the useful things about our topic tonight, about truth, is that you're continually drawn in reason to the proposition that there can only be one truth.
it's a, a different approach, but you can also make the transition to say that there is one God. There are different means, different systems, different religions exist to meet minds at different levels of development. And so they have evolved over many years. And for those people who are not devotional, then philosophy can offer a resolution. But in the end, really, you need them both. Religion without philosophy could become superstitious. And philosophy without the devotional powers of religion could become dry and intellectual. So it's useful to have both. And any good system of philosophy would always encourage the development of both. That you become devotional, even if it's to your fellow students, or to the system, or to the society. That you develop the devotional in us and balance that with the rational. And similarly, the devotional people need a bit of the rational in them as well. So it's always useful in a group, and you will know this from philosophy groups, that the people who are devotional will always speak in those terms. And usually you can spot them because they start their sentences with, I feel. Whereas the rational people will invariably start their sentences with, I think. And in a group, you have the dynamic there that the head cases can learn from the hearts. Not to be dismissive of the hearts, but to learn from them. And the hearts always need a bit more of the head. The heads are always explaining everything to everybody. And the hearts are, have always got it. They don't know how they've got it, but they've got it. They're always concerned of what is keeping the heads from getting this. They won't be able to tell you how they got there, but they're there. And you need them both. They're, they're both very good. Incidentally, the third category are the people who are not head cases. Are not, they're the doers. They're invariably listening to the heads and listening to the hearts. And they don't say much themselves, but they're thinking. And what they're thinking is, there's nothing wrong with either of those that a good dose of hard work wouldn't sort out. <laughs> when you're in the company of doers, everything is resolved in terms of work. More scrubbing is what's needed. Well, there you are. I spoke about the purpose of this life is to realize the ultimate truth. And this life is lived out in the physical world. And you said that the senses are really of no use to us, or very little use to us, in realizing this ultimate truth. So my question is, have we been given the wrong tools for the job? Oh. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. Well, perhaps I could repeat it there. There's two aspects to the question. One is, in the talk, the point was made that the purpose of a human life was to realize the truth. And it was also made in the talk was that the senses couldn't give us the whole picture. And the bottom line was, have we been given the wrong tools to do the job? Is that fair enough? Okay, well, the first, first interesting thing is that where you find a particular characteristic in this creation, you usually find a key 
to its purpose. And in the human being, you have this unique capacity that we are able to contemplate ourselves. We're able to ask these questions that we've been asking tonight. That's quite unique in the creation, where you have everything fixed. So you can be reasonably certain that if we have this gift, it's related somehow to a special purpose, which is to discover the truth about ourselves. We have that built into us, uniquely. With regard to the senses, the senses themselves are really very, very useful. They're useful in a particular way in that the senses operate in the present moment. So any connection with the senses take us into the present. And when you're talking about eternal truth or eternally present truth, a good place to be is present. So from that point of view, the senses are really, really useful. They are significantly useful tools. But the objects of sense, i.e. what you can see and what you can taste and what you can hear, there are limitations there. So the direction in the school invariably is to connect with the activity of the sense rather than the object of the sense. And in that way, they are powerful tools. We should be grateful for them. They're, they're <laughs> grateful. They do help by bringing us into the present, but they can't show us in the objects what we're looking for in terms of truth. Would that be fair enough? I was just wondering, this strikes me now, that lady talking about the senses and everything. Would I be right in saying that the majority of people in the world kind of don't think about philosophy or if, they, if they're in a religion that it's a kind of, I wouldn't say, of course, not for everybody, but it's a kind of something that's part of their upbringing and to go to mass or whatever yes. their uh, ritual is. Hmm. And but the main passion they have is for their lives, for their families, for their education, for making a happy life hmm. for themselves. And like that lady was saying about the senses, I feel that both religion and maybe philosophy as well, it kind of puts human beings down, if you like, you know, because as regards religion, you know, we're all sinners and we're all this and we're all that, and it's a lot of negativities. And philosophy is kind of way up there, and I just wonder, does the ordinary person, I don't know about the whole world, obviously, but I mean, a majority of people just living, as I think human beings should live, in this reality, the, re the reality of, you know, the senses and everyday life and things like that. Mm. Okay. Well, that's another very good question. It would be true to say that the problem, it's not local, the problem is universal. The universal problem, you can usually trace it back to ignorance. And ignorance is that which divides us. Truth is the unity. And if we can discover the truth, we discover that which unites us. Philosophy and religion are different paths to the same reality. But the question is, where do you find this happiness that is content irrespective of what fortune throws at you? irrespective of where you find yourself in the creation. 
irrespective of finding you know difference and opposition, where do you find that? Can I come in there again? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I would I would find that, and like I say, living as a human being, I mean, I'm happily married. I enjoy my work. I enjoy my life. Really, God, our philosophy doesn't really concern me. I feel I'm I'm living as a human being should live. To me, I'm perfectly happy. I remember a, a lady in a group said to me, we were on a 12-week term early in the group. She said, something like you just said now tonight. She said, look, I'm happy. I have a good husband. I have two lovely children. All is well. And don't give me any more of this happiness stuff, right? But here's what happened. Before the end of the term, her husband died. Tragically. And one of the pillars then of that happiness was taken away. And there was great sadness and great sorrow. And so you have to look at, is there a happiness which is based on certain physical things? Or is there a happiness that simply is and is in all circumstances? That is with whatever life throws at us. Philosophy and religion are always pointing to the second type. Happiness which is, comes from within is direct, not indirect, not coming through the senses and the mind. It comes from within, directly. And that happiness is the goal or the aim of true philosophy and true religion. My point would be, I know you're talking about death and it's a dreadful thing, but I mean, to me, death is part of life. Sure. I mean, you know, I'm not thinking this is going to go on forever. I mean, I know the end, but I mean, I accept that as part of life. But hold I mean, on a second now. The message of philosophy and of religion offers eternal happiness. Eternal happiness. So what would you be worried about then? <laughs> You're still worried. <laughs> like fanciful ideas, is that what you're going to say? Well, they're either fanciful ideas or they're true. And the interesting thing is, and this sometimes can take a lifetime of study, to decide whether this phenomenal world and what it has to offer, the good things that it has to offer, is it or is there something else. The wisdom of the ages is saying that the phenomenal world is a temporary place which offers temporary happiness based on various temporal props and that there is something else, a happiness which simply is, not based on any externals. And if you find it, you find a great prize. And the place you look for it is in ourselves not in the external world, not indirectly through the mind of the senses, but directly inside. And the key to it, and it's over and over again has been said, fall still, fall Sorry. still, fall still, be still, be still. You can't think it. Thinking and explanations will lead you up to the brink, but ultimately the knowledge is fall still, be still, and it is yours. <laughs> I think we we'll just have to differ on that. As Spinoza said, the wise man does not think of death, and that's kind of my philosophy. I enjoy this life that I Why know. does the wise man not think of Did you ever ask, think of asking Mr. Spinoza why he said that? Because I know he's not around, but why does the wise man not think of death? It's kind of like, why think of something that you really don't know anything about? 
But he could mean that. He could so mean he put your head in the sand and don't think about death. Or he could say that with insight, you know that death is not real. It's part of the phenomenal thing. But that which is real does not come to pass. He could be taking that line. And a good line of inquiry is to find out what did he mean? Did he mean f just forget about it and it, it'll, <laughs> it'll come when it comes? Or did he mean that it's not really substantial? Good question. Good philosophical question. Yeah. Well, I, I just thought he meant that, like, what's the point of thinking about it? We don't know what happens after that. I don't think that's what he meant. Spinoza understood that death of the physical is not worthwhile bothering about. There is a life, an eternal life, which is not affected by or subject to death. That's another point. And therefore, why would you be bothered about death? Because you're connected with that which is beyond death. Death belongs to the physical world. So I, I, I agree with that. But so now you're okay. Now you've got death, your job, and your wife. <laughs> <laughs> and so long as they hold up, you're in great shape. <laughs> oh, you're what? <laughs> this is Mary at the dinner party, yeah. <laughs> it's a, a very good argument to, to pursue. Right, Michael. Um, you speak about being true to yourself, and, and um, it just did that was the kind of the basis of the talk, and you know the who of who we are. I suppose, from my understanding, is that the essence of truth. But you're saying there is only one truth. But my question is, is that how come then that uh, you know if we're being true to ourselves, being being true to myself may be different than somebody else being true to themselves, but yet. You're saying there is only one truth. I don't understand. Right. It's different. I know there's a parallel there, but I don't understand it. Yeah. Can you hear that? No. no. Just as well, because you wouldn't want to be up here now with questions like this. Yeah. It basically, the question is that the direction is to be true to yourself. And, uh, and therefore, being true to yourself would take us to different destinations. And the thrust of the talk tonight is that there is one destination. Is that fair enough? Okay. This is the great philosophical question or the great voyage of discovery. Where you have on the diagram, you have what I think, what I feel, what I am, what I believe, and the physical body, they're all different. But the observing subject on the other side, is that different or is it the same? Does all difference appear on the phenomenal side and when you get over to the observing subject side, do you find that which is the same? And being true to yourself, which is a good, good question, does it take you to different, or does it take you to the truth, to the unity? And the wise will tell you, and your own experience can tell you, that when you fall still, is it not the case that the personality and the differences and all of those things subside, but you don't disappear? And if you don't disappear, what's that? What's that that doesn't disappear? That's always the same, that's always in presence, that's always available, that's always accessible, and that always satisfies. What's that? And you may be able to, from there, find that that is the same in all of us. That when you fall still, what we meet is the same. Same peace, same fulfillment, same contentment, same bliss, same perfection, same truth. We're individual people, 
that would mean... That's on one side. Yeah. Our appearance, physical body is different. The mental makeup is different. And our like, purposes are different. Purposes are different. They're all different, yes. But that which observes all that is not any of those things. It is unchanging and it is the same. And the only proof of its existence is to unite with it. You cannot get there empirically. You can't work it out and come to a conclusion and put it up on a board. But you can get there by surrendering thinking, feeling, believing, surrender, and there it is. And it's a matter of your own indubitable experience, if I manage to get that out. All right. it's, not, it's not a matter for doubt. And the individual consciousness and the universal consciousness are the same. And that is a penny-dropping moment. You distinguished between truth and facts. So if I state that the screen is white, that's a statement of fact rather than a statement of truth, I take it. Yes, well, it's a true statement. But the object of the exercise is to get beyond the true statement to truth itself. Right. To be able to say that that is a true statement means that that statement partakes in truth. Yeah. And the philosophy, the sincere philosophy student is interested in truth itself. Right. Which makes all things true. Statements, things and so on. Yes. Right. So the the statement then partakes of the truth. Yes, yes, just as a beautiful book partakes of beauty. And the same thing would apply to, a, a we'll say, a, a judicial investigation to determine what actually happened. That the aim would be to partake of the truth. Well, certainly, without the truth, the truth is the foundation. Without yes. the truth, without the unity, no justice. No justice. Right. And you can try all you like, but unless the truth is there, there will be no justice. Truth comes first. But isn't all this an opting out? If everybody did this, we'd never get anything done. If I understand you correctly, the notion of falling still would mean that we would do nothing. Well, I wonder if that's the case. The more likely prospect is that in stillness, uh, the higher organ of the mind works with its gifts of reason and discrimination that we would continue to act but we would act under reason and under discrimination and that the energy would go to what was useful rather than useless and that we would take any peace that we have found and bring it into our families and into the workplace and into our churches and wherever we go. In a world that's crying for it. But being still does not mean that you lie down and do nothing. But it does mean that your actions would be refined through the stillness.
just a curious thing about that, and this is from direct experience working in philosophy, is that this does not become a continuous struggle to do right things. But just as there is a practice of falling still, discrimination rises, and we're naturally drawn to what's useful, helpful, and good. But if the philosophy school is a model, it's not about not doing things. <laughs> it's about doing a lot of things. I guess I've a lot to learn. I guess I've a lot to learn. <laughs> interesting thing about this kind of knowledge is that it's already in us. It was the philosopher Lao Tzu in China, 500 BC, who said, in the pursuit of learning, every day something is acquired. In the pursuit of Tao, or Tao, which is the ultimate, every day something is dropped. So it's very useful. It points direction for us. It's not more learning as such. We already know far too much. <laughs> but through stillness, that real knowledge, which is in us, seems to rise up and act through us. So it's not dependent on what we learn, or who our teachers were, or even who our parents were. It's in us, innate in us. And stillness allows that to rise and up. But the experience is that doesn't mean you do nothing. Well, the body is kept busy, let's put it that way. But there's a part of us that can be still. In any circumstance. It's a good question. So it would not be a good idea to confuse stillness with indolence or lethargy or doing nothing. And most of the time, you know, when we're acting, you can act from fear, you can act from anxiety, you can act from impatience, all those things. You can be rushing around, which is a feature of our world, rushing around like headless chickens, doing this, that, and the other. Making lists. <laughs> the tragedy is we're going to die with a list. <laughs> so there's nothing wrong with activity in the world, but all that running around is not ultimate. That is just running around. Useful to find that which is behind that or beyond that, which is at rest. Yourself. And then you can act efficiently in the world. Things are done because they're useful, not just out of uncurbed energy. Would it be an experience of your knowledge in your lifetime, or would you describe as yourself somebody who would be at truth? That's my first question. And the second thing I was going to add on was uh, early on, we all know that Socrates said he did know nothing. Yes. Was he referring that he uh, compares that what he didn't know, what he knew was nothing, or was he just saying that? He was not a perceiver or, or, or a king in, in, in the earth. Yes, yeah. if, you, if you know. He didn't go that far. He didn't say that. <coughs> we just extrapolated it tonight for the benefit of the talk because it is extraordinary 
that this wise of men, we're still reading him after two and a half thousand years, said he knew nothing. He was regarded as the wisest of men or, or was happy to go along with the proclamation of the, the oracle at Delphi that he was the wisest of men because he knew nothing and he knew he knew nothing. The people he met knew nothing and didn't know they knew nothing. And in that regard, he was happy to say he was wiser than they were. Because he set out to refute the oracle. He said, I, I don't go along with this. But with regard to the other part of the question, over the interest in philosophy over some 30 years now, I'm very happy to stand in front of you this evening and say that that is my experience, my understanding, my belief that this is the true situation. And you find there a contentment and satisfaction which is marked by not having to keep on looking, not having to keep on seeking and searching, striving, and just to be at peace with that. I didn't start out like that. I started out with a lot of questions. But over the years, very happy to rest with, with that. There is one existence. The same for all of us. The differences are in the effects, in the appearance, in the names and the shapes, but essentially that which is the same. The example is, it's in the talk, but just to make it again, the example is electricity, if you can use an, an analogy. Electricity remains the same, but in a kitchen it will boil, freeze, wash, iron, light. It'll do all these many different things. But they're all physical things. Yeah, they are. It's only an example, yes. But it just shows you how the one which remains the same, which is unaffected by what happens in the kitchen, how it might be. It's just an example. It's a limited example in the physical world. But it does mirror how that which is the same can manifest in many different ways. And of course, the electricity is not affected in the least if the fridge breaks or if the kettle wears out. It's not, not affected. It remains the same. The effects are different. So it's a good analogy, but limited as an analogy. You mentioned truth as subject, not object. Yes. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that? For us, yep. Please? Have we got marker by any chance? No marker? I think it might be helpful because it's a difficult enough concept. The question, ladies and gentlemen, is that in the talk I mentioned that truth is, well, it's some people, you never know what people have in their handbags. Look at that. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a difficult enough concept, but it's expressed in the simplest of diagrams, a straight line here. And just see if you go along with this for a moment. 
in any observation, any observation that you can think of, there are two poles. Subject, which sees, and an object which is seen. Is that fair enough? Can anybody think of an observation that doesn't have a seer and a seeing? In other words, if you have an observation, there must be something seen, is that right? An observation? And something to see. Something or someone sees. So you have, in any observation, you have a subject and an object. The object is what's seen, and a subject is what sees. Is that fair enough? Now just put it to the test. Without a seer, could you have an observation? But then there would be something which would see that. Isn't that right? No, but it's, you'd observe it through touch. Yes. So you couldn't have an observation unless there was something to observe. Is that fair enough? And similarly, if there was nothing to observe, could you have an observation? Or you might be able to say, I observe there is nothing. So anyway, in any observation that you have, you need those two poles. So this means that wherever there is an observation, wherever there's an observation, there is a subject and an object. Now, just to answer the question then, are our thoughts under observation? Do you know what you're thinking? Anytime. Do you know what you're thinking? Do you know what's going on now? We just struggle to answer this question without committing any sins. <laughs> Do you know what's going on? Therefore, all right, there's confusion. All right, there's confusion. Where is the confusion on the board? Is it subject or object? Why is it subject? Let's just ask the group now for a moment. Is it subject or object? Why is it object? Because it is, you can describe it, therefore it implies at least that it is object and there must be therefore a subject which observes. So are you as clear as a bell that you're confused? <laughs> no. <laughs> you see the point? The subject is clear as a bell that there's confusion. The confusion is object. Now you can easily take object and say, that's it. But based on our diagram and based on reason, if there is an observation, if there's an object, if there's something seen, there must be a subject based on our model. So your thoughts, your feelings, your brilliance, where are they all? Subject or object? or object, and therefore there must be a subject. And what is the subject? The witness, the observer, or in the context of tonight, that which simply is. Ever-changing, never-changing. And so when you're looking for truths, all our seeking, all our searching is over here, looking at the myriad options looking at the quotations, looking at the explanations, looking at the answers, reading the scriptures, going to courses, taking philosophy classes, all over here. Until the penny drops that what we're looking for is what I am. And that the way is not more searching and not more seeking, the way is to fall still.
and move from thinking to being. Any answer that you come up with, any answer that you come up with, will it be subject or object? Object. Therefore, there must be subject. And the big question is, what is that? Who is that? And also, another good question to ask is, while the objects are all different, what about this subject? Is it also different, or is it perhaps the same? The witnessing consciousness. So we're looking for truth over here as hard as we can, while the wise are saying to us all the time, forget it, be still. And so the switch between knowing, believing, thinking, and being is the shift. Be still. If you can understand it and explain it, you're over here. If you're confused, you're over here. But what is it that's clear as a bell that you're confused over here. And trying to sort it out over here is to miss the point. Now this is, this is hard to say, but when we're over here trying to figure it out, that's ignorance. As someone brought up in the Catholic tradition, where we were taught in the Catechism that there is just one true religion, that's a falsehood, if you like, in this theory, because there is only one truth. And when I'm, and I'm in the school about 12 or 13 years, when I think of the self, I think of God. But that's really not the way it should be in this context, that there's a truth above all of that which is hard to reconcile when you've been indoctrinated in a Certainly. system. Certainly, yeah. Yes, if it is heard literally as you've given us the catechism thing, then one of the difficulties for the Catholic and for other churches is the exclusivity, which means that this is the only way and everybody else is in trouble. That exclusivity is a problem for Catholic Church. But if it is heard in the terms of there is only one great religion, which is to realize the truth, which is the same, it, it, it's heard the way you've said it. Certainly I would come up in that tradition as well. Let's see if you can go along with this. I don't know if you can or not, but if you will or not. The different religions exist to meet different minds at different levels of development. And for some, a personal God which has all the attributes, that the best attributes that we can conjure up, is the way for them to be devotional. And that is fine. But the question is, is there a step beyond? Is there somewhere further to go? And if you listen to the wise, they will say that the next step is to realize 
or unite with the ultimate truth. To move from me and God to just the one unity. The truth is the unity. It's what unites us. Let me ask another question. We know the greatness of truth. We, we can get sense of it time to time. As mankind, how did we manage to, um, you know, manage to be like 9,900 on in arrogancy and maybe one just on the other side? Like, uh, the, I mean, uh, the truth is really the greatest. Uh, why we yeah. walked away? So well, now there is really, you've you really asked a question, there's a real problem with that because you can have a shot at establishing that which is, i.e. truth, but there's no accounting for ignorance. No accounting for it. You, it has no substance. So you can't, I can't answer the question, I can't explain it. You have the stories in the Eastern and the Western traditions, the Adam and Eve story, where someone grasping for themselves without regard to what anybody else is going to get is how evil entered the world or ignorance entered the world. But you're much better off to try and deal with that which is rather than to try and understand or explain ignorance. It has no base. It can only exist as a cover or an aspect of what is true. So stick with the truth. <laughs> Don't try to understand ignorance. There's no understanding. If you can find out how things are, you know, where the truth lies, you're as safe as a house. <laughs> I was just wondering, does philosophy have an explanation or a reasoning on why we have this body, the heart, mind that changes all the time? Is there some reason why we have this body the changes yeah. in the mind and the heart. What is the point of having these changes if we're ultimately an unchanging observer? Is there some point to it all of why we're here in the first place? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, the main reason is so that you come to these talks. That's the main reason. Right? <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a very big philosophical question, but in the scheme of things, the human being has the capacity, first of all, has the great gift of freedom. It's got free will. So you have this extraordinary gift and this extraordinary capacity to be able to, if you like, close the loop, where in the great thrust of creation, everything is moving out from the creator, fine to course. And the human being has this unique capacity of being able to move the other way, be able to discover the truth, if you like, and close the loop, so that the entire creation is manifested in every degree to magnify the wonder and the beauty of the Absolute. And in that you have this unique character man who has this capacity to contemplate himself, to discover the truth, and return to the Creator. It is said by the wise that in return for a human birth, we make three promises. And the promises is one, to remember the Creator, 
to live according to the fine rules of the creation and to return to the creator. It's part of the wisdom of the ages. It's like these Upanishads, they're without authorship, you know. But it has a good sound to it, doesn't it? Yeah. In return for human birth. So there you are. The significant thing is that the human being plays a particular part in the great cycle of the creation. And the thing that the human being can do uniquely is realize the truth. And where you find this unique characteristic, in any creature, you find there is purpose. And the purpose of a human being is to discover the truth. Simple, beautiful, and light. And good night. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.